This is episode 125 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Giselle Carnaby. She is a professor, speech pathologist, and public health epidemiologist. She has over 30 plus years of clinical experience in the evaluation and management of dysphagia and SLP treatments in adults. She currently works as the director of the Center for Upper Aerodigestive Functions at the University of Central Florida. Dr. Carnaby has worked extensively in both national and international research trials and has served as a PI and biostatistician on numerous federal grants. She serves as a grant reviewer for the national and international research bodies. She is an ASHA fellow with more than 100 publications. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Giselle. Hi. How are you going? <laughs> good, good, good. Thank you for joining me. No problem. All right. So I know who you are, but tell the people who you are. All right. So I better start <laughs> with the obvious. I'm Australian. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a past immigrant, naturalized now. But I'm a professor of, at the moment, speech language pathology at the University of Central Florida. And I'm the director of the Center for Upper Aerodigestive Functions at UCF. I'm also a professor of medicine at UCF. So I've got a bunch of titles hanging around. But the reason I say that, that, that now I'm a professor of speech pathology is because my prior life, which was about four years ago, in my prior life, I was a uh, director and professor of public health. So I have speech pathology roots, and I also have biostatistics and epidemiology roots. Awesome, which I think is just the most fascinating part of all this. So, all right, what are we going to talk about today? You tell me. All right. um, what I got given or told was um, something about RPE. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, th I think wonderful Dr. Crary Vollen told you for that. So, Oh, lovely. <laughs> yeah, so where, where do we start with that? Okay, so I'm not sure if everybody knows what the term RPE even is. So I guess RPE is a term we use in exercise physiology, basically means rate of perceived exertion. And it's used primarily, in my area, it's used primarily as a subjective assessment of how physically or mentally difficult an exercise is for a patient. So it's really a tool I use, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it relates more specifically to mental fatigue than it does to physical fatigue. So it kind of talks about how well the person is tolerating the exercise. That's probably the easiest way to describe it. Okay. So yeah, it's I, not new at all. Right, right. And I think like for me, it's very common as far as like weightlifting and I'm sure like in the world of physical therapy and things. And then when I started hearing it for speech pathology and swallowing, I was like, that kind of makes a lot, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, it, interestingly for me, it began with dyspnea, actually. <laughs> it's very heavily used in um, breathing and COPD. 
So back in the 60s, this guy called Borg, okay, Gunnar Borg, introduced this scale. And it was, it's since then morphed across a number of domains. So you can, there's a scale for dyspnea, there's a scale for angina, there's a scale for pain. There's a bunch of Borg scales out there. And there is the long original Borg scale, which was from 6 to 20. And then there's the shortened Borg scale, which is what everybody calls RPE now, which is the CR10 Borg scale, which goes from 0 to 10, with 0 being I'm lying on the couch, eating and just doing nothing, being a couch potato, and 10 being I am doing a sprint. Okay. In terms of sort of exercise effort. Okay. So then how do we relate that to swallowing? It's really a measure of exhaustion in some regards. And exhaustion's more of like a psychological thing. So it's kind of when do you hit your wall is how it measures you. When have you at that maximum level and you can't endure anymore? And so it is a moving target. So it's a low-tech way for us to kind of measure mental fatigue some people use the Borg scales and we have used in uh, UCF, we use the Borg scales during therapy and we use it in a pictorial manner. So there's an Omni scale that's out there and they make Omnis for all different types of people. And we use a simple Omni scale, which is a picture of a lady climbing upstairs and zero is her standing there looking at the stairs at rest. And 10 is she's barely making it up the stairs and she has sweat coming out of her head. <laughs> All right. And the reason we use pictorial is that a lot of our patients have cognitive limitations. And along with sort of cueing and all the lovely things that speech pathologists do when they work with cognitively impaired patients, presenting a pictorial and a very simple pictorial that identifies those levels of effort is helpful for us to work out where the patient in terms is in terms of their tolerance of what we're asking them to do. Okay. So is this, I'm trying to ask this without, is this something that you guys do not like during MDTP or is this something you do during MDTP? Pretty much use it whenever we need to. We won't use it on yeah. every patient. I mean, some of patients who are really cognitively verbal and really with it, I don't need to bring that out. I can just talk to them. But if I've got patients who are really limited in terms of their cognition, and for us limited, you know, for, for our research, limited was less than MMSC24, which okay. is mini mental state. That was just what we use for research. That's really not not what we use clinically. So yeah. I will see patients who are much, much, much more cognitively severe and do MDTP with them. But I'm really using multimodality sensory cueing when I use when I work with those patients. Yeah. So that's the kind of patient I would bring this out with. Yeah. And I use it as a supplement to my therapeutic treatment. So it's not part of MDTP, it's just part of good therapy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's kind of what I meant is, do you use kind of this this fo- mode of feedback throughout all of your therapy? I didn't exactly mean just the picture, but so constantly asking them where they are on the scale to get that kind of feedback as the therapy session's going on. Yeah. I mean, yeah. here's the thing. People have the wrong concept of what fatigue is. Okay? Yes. So several kinds of fatigue. And the fatigue we get when we ask a patient about how they perceive something is a really a central fatigue or an exhaustion or mental fatigue measure. So mental fatigue is related to 
a bunch of biological processes as well. So whenever you're doing anything that involves an exercise of any form, you're constantly checking with the patient. Is the reason you're not moving forward a problem with understanding what I want you to do? Or is it a problem of mental fatigue? Or is it a problem of motor form, which is a whole different issue? Yeah. Because RP is kind of just like one part of the whole thing. It's not everything. So it's just part of the story there's lots of other stresses that make the work that we ask patients to do in swallowing harder so breathing difficulties cognitive issues anatomical issues even just neurological disinhibition of some of the structures that has nothing to do with rpe but it can affect rpe gotcha rpe alone is really highly subjective to the person and like i said it's a moving target so as you work with a patient their rpe measurement and their RPE or their central or mental fatigue will change and they will tolerate more. Gotcha. So you constantly need to check back in as you're going along to make sure where that patient is. So you can do that with, when we first started, we started using what's called a perception of swallowing scale or a VAS of patient perception of swallowing. And we use that in the research. You'll see it written up as a VAS scale, which is basically just another word for RPE. So we're asking them, where do you think you are with your swallowing? And we would ask that every day they came into therapy when we studied it. Now, clinically, I just pick it in and out whenever I need it, basically. Yeah, gotcha. And I think that's, you know, there's there's always with different insurance payers and things like that, what makes our treatment and what makes our therapy skilled. And I think this is one thing that really helps us as speech pathologists, why you actually need a speech pathologist there to you know, change up the therapy as opposed to just a machine or a robot. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't just rely on machines. (laughs) But I mean, in most cases, we want our patients working. If we we put it into RPE terms, we want them working at something moderately difficult. If it's too difficult, the increase in mental fatigue becomes intolerable. So if you think you can't do it, you you actually physically can't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love this. Yeah, so it has a lot of applications, I think, across, even just across speech pathology, not just in swallowing. Yeah. I just don't think, I think we've used it inherently by using VAS scales and things like that and asking the patient how they feel and where they're at. But I don't think we've quantified it the way it's quantified in exercise physiology. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. All right. So, yeah, I mean... When we work with patients, basically, we, we're taking these patients that, that come in with these, I don't know how you describe that. I guess I describe it as basically they have this this impairment that results in an inability to move their muscles rapidly. So they kind of forget what it's like to move it. And that all that forgetfulness actually lends itself over time into this disuse profile that you see. And so as it sort of cycles downwards, they can't even turn it around because their central fatigue increases and their perception of their ability to change it increases. And then because of that, because the, the error patterns that they're sort of producing in their attempts to swallow become so large that they actually produce this negative learning that moves, moves muscles and moves their swallowing system structures into positions they're not supposed to be in 
And so, you know, as you can learn to do something well, you can also learn to do it poorly. And what they do is they sort of learn to swallow poorly. And once that sets in, when we get them, they're at this novel level that we start working with. So when we start working with them at the base as a speech pathologist, when they first come in and say, I'm having all these problems, I maybe I'm on a peg, I've maybe been aspirating and I'm not allowed to eat anything. They're really at this novel learning of motor control and of muscle use. And so at that novice level, we really have to understand that they have inconsistent performance in the way they do things. And we have to then simplify everything and simplify the degrees of movement and increase the cognitive load in some regard to get it going. So they're slow to perform. They need a lot of feedback. They need a lot of form fundamentals to get even to get the right error pattern occurring. I'd say the right error pattern, but I'm talking about natural errors occurring. And it's very energy inefficient, their attempts. So they're going to get more centrally fatigued up early when you start working with them. So you see large gains in those early early times that you start working with a patient, but you also see inconsistent performance because of it. As we kind of work with them, we move them to this more advanced level where they get a gradual improvement or release of degrees of freedom of movement because normal swallowing is highly variable. And in actual fact, it's really adaptable. So when someone is normally swallowing, you have all of these variability, all of this variability that's inherent in the system. Well, when you're impaired, you don't have that. You've actually reduced your response and it's highly context specific and it's really reduced in its sort of degrees and, and range of movement. And so as we move to that next level of more advanced training, they become more adaptive to different contexts. And by giving them experience with different, gradually and systematically with different contexts um, and different environmental cues and different perceived exertion levels, you're then able to improve their energy response and improve the degrees of freedom, get better co-contraction of the muscles. And then at the last level of therapy, when we work with people, we're really at that expert level where all of the degrees of motion become released. The patient becomes more efficient and coordinated and we're able to exploit all the mechanical and inertia properties of the different tasks we place them in. Awesome. Was that just a bunch of verbal diarrhea or what? It was, but it was great. (laughs) (laughs) This is the problem. You could be talking on this stuff and it's just going to come out. But that's great. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. And that's why I love doing this too, because there's so many concepts that, you know, people think what we do is like just so strange and weird, but it's like (laughs) nobody just like made up swallowing exercises one day. Like they actually came from other exercise physiology research. So I love love your, we've leveraged a lot of work from a lot of very smart people. I guess the response is on the backs of giants. There go I. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There you go. Yeah. So, so I can just hear, you know, the, the clinician saying now, well, you know, well, how do I know, you know, the RP or are you actually measuring it with a biofeedback tool or is it just all subjective based on what the patient tells us? So, what okay. You- so it is subjective because every single individual is different in their ability to tolerate exercise at different times in their life, actually. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. think about it. I yeah. want to go out and I want to do, you know, this like this morning I was doing Sean T. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I had had a weekend off. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> 
And so when I started to do it, I'm like, oh, my God, I don't think I can get through this exercise. And my RPE was probably pretty high at that point. Yeah, yeah. And it, but the week before that, when I was doing it systematically every day, that same exercise wasn't at the same level RPE for me. Yeah. So like I said, this is something that the patient is really going to it's specific to the patient, it's specific to their tolerance, it's specific to their mental state in some regards on how they feel they're going that day. So it is going to vary and quite wildly at times, Yeah. depending on also the fear quotient as well. Because remember, fear is part of the same pathway. And so fear is also a perceptual thing. It's also central and peripheral. It's generated by the brain just like fatigue is fatigue is really influenced by the amount of serotonin in your system if you've got really high levels of serotonin and serotonin is the get up and go if you like that we have if you've got a lot of serotonin going on a little bit is good it gets you up and going but too much is like a gateway barrier to actually doing any more exercise yeah so they know that this is related by the way your muscles and your brain produce this this neurotransmitter yeah, this is something that's going to be individual to that particular person at any one point in time. Yeah. So it needs multiple samples. But and I think what I what I really love and appreciate about you is you have such a vast research background, but yet you understand the actual clinical translation and kind of what the I, I hate to say this, but the quote unquote real world clinicians are doing every day. You know, mm-hmm. and I, and I know it's 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 I don't want to say easy for some researchers to say, well, you have to use this tool and you have to use this scale and you have to measure it with this form of biofeedback, but not every clinician has access to that stuff. Here's the thing. Some of those tools actually don't do what we think they do. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of research gone on in a number of different fields that basically say when you attach yourself to a device, you actually change the training environment. And when you do that, you're diminishing all these real-world salient cues that can help you complete the task. Interesting. So transfer of learning from device-driven approaches is actually less efficient than internally driven learning. Interesting. So there's a bunch of research done by, I'm going to get the name right now, Taurus Avito would be the name. Taurus Avito and Amy Bastian. <laughs> Uh, she's a PhD student of Amy Bastian's. Oh, well, not anymore, but she was. And basically, there's this research that showed that if they had them work on devices and they blindfolded them, the transfer of motor gain in gait was less. Wow. When Sorry, it was less when they didn't have the blindfold on. So when they could see. That's crazy. But when they blindfolded everybody, they showed this improved transfer of motor learning and improved magnitude of benefit. And what they were able to take away from some of that was that this, that the visual context, they relied more heavily on the visual context and on the device when they could see. When they couldn't see, they relied on fine-tuning their sensory and motor system from internal cues. That's interesting. It's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah, so um, we know from a bunch of work done by those guys with different machinery that because a lot of the times the machinery we work on is kind of manipulated and it's not actual real world. Like when you go down and have, you know, breakfast with your family, you're not attached to a machine and you don't watch the machine to see if you're swallowing hard. 
that that is so non-real world that the transfer of gains across from one to the other is less. Interesting. And that doesn't mean that you don't use them. It just means you have to understand the limitations of those yeah. devices and work out a way to kind of gradually fade them out. Yeah. So they're great for getting up and going and they're great for getting that form of the swallow going. But then, you know, at some point, you have to detach from that and you want to detach gradually because one of the things we know is that rapid and large errors that can be produced with a rapid change in environment actually cause a negative neural response. So if you're going to take a person off that machine, you need to do it in stages and small steps. That makes a lot of sense. So that might mean something like, okay, say you were using SEMG, that might mean like putting a towel over it every now and again. So you start to do more intermittent practice. And then following that, you might turn the sound off or you might turn the patient around for different boluses, different practices that we know they're able to do quite well. But yeah. you wouldn't do it when you were introducing something new. Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes total sense. And I, I didn't really think about that. I'm, you know, I don't know how many times people have just relied on these different systems and technologies and then just taken them away and expected everything to be wonderful yeah, it's, again. It's like, you know, yeah. you're given a, a walker, you give the patient a walker to walk on and then you say, okay, no more walker, throw it away. Off you go. Yeah. On yeah, uneven off you go. <laughs> yeah. And they fall yeah. yeah. And then that puts them off from trying again. Yeah. Because yeah. then that you get into the dopamine, serotonin stuff where they're not getting any reward or pleasure or benefit. And so they become kind of depressed. So it changes the serotonin pathway because serotonin is related to mood, which then increases their mental fatigue. It's all connected. It's hard to explain. Yeah. (laughs) It's all connected. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So whenever you introduce anything, be it in therapeutic intervention or in pretty much anything where you want someone to do something new, it should always be a gradual introduction of what they call perturbations or changes and a gradual variability of the environment that those things are produced in. And that way you'll get much better transfer of learning and better sort of approximation of the movement that you want. Awesome. All right. Told you I'm full of useless information. No, stop it. Not useless (laughs) at all. No, I love this. It's really hard because I think that in swallow, and this is certainly one of my goals longitudinally, but in swallowing, I don't think anyone's ever put the ultimate text together where these concepts are all laid out in print. Yeah. So I don't, and, and in real world, like real world examples. Yeah. Are you working on that, Giselle? Oh God, it's 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 on the bucket list. Put it that way. <laughs> I know it sounds really stupid. <laughs> no, but no. I, first I, I have imagine. to pay for myself with a large grant and then it's on the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine it's a small feat. So, yeah. But yeah, this this kind of what you're seeing in the evolution of swallowing at the moment, I really think is a blending of information from other professional groups into an, a blending and an adaptation to swallowing that's never been done before. So... Yeah. You, initially, we had all this stuff, people talking about neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity. Then we had a bunch of people talking about strength, 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 strength. And now we've got a bunch of people talking about skill and motor learning. And so all of these things need to be blended. But having the right recipe 
has always been challenging. Yeah. And I think nobody has produced the cookbook. There's my, there's my kitchen analogy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's what everybody's looking for is just, yeah, I yeah. just need this one recipe and then it's going to help everybody. Yeah. I mean, in, in MDTP goes pretty much part way to doing that, but I think that we don't as yet, and we haven't produced the book that talks about how it theoretically fits into what we know about the brain, about muscle control, about training. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I look forward to reading that someday. <laughs> it's bedside <laughs> reading, really. <laughs> but love that it. And, a, um, and a melatonin will put you out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let me ask you, because I know this is kind of just one of your hot topics as well is, you know, uh, it's, it's difficult as a clinician to find all the time to read all this research and dive into the research and figure out how we're supposed to translate it to clinical practice. But I think, you know, one thing that I spoke with you about, which, which is interesting is that so many of us clinicians just don't even know how to read the research Mm -hmm. properly and how to translate it into our clinical practice. Yep. This is not something that is unique uh, to this profession, by the way, uh, I know that nursing That's has comforting. the same problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nursing has the same problem. Medicine has the same problem. Here, the difference I think is that, and you're starting to see it at the universities a little too, is that we spend a lot of time in those first four years at at, at school at, at college in basically useless high school repetition. <laughs> And then we choose a profession and we go, great, we're going to move in and, you know, we're going to do our final year of senior where we get some specific courses and then we're going to hop into our, into our master's program. But the master's programs are designed to be teaching a clinical skill and making you a quote unquote master of that clinical skill. And so there's a lot of assumptions made that students already know all this stuff. They know how to identify literature, how to search literature, how to find the right things and how to read them. And in some systems, that skill is actually physically taught. In other systems, it really isn't taught. And I think in the bulk of systems, it isn't taught. And so it's like, oh, learn it by osmosis. Here's a few words. And so it's not our profession's problem in terms of they didn't set this up, but the way that universities have sort of tried to keep up with the times is push more students through, ask them to spend more money and give them less. Yeah. (laughs) And so people are left scrambling and then you're getting this top-down push to do more with evidence that you haven't been taught how to read. And it's actually, you have to learn it. It's not, it doesn't come by osmosis. And so just reading a paper doesn't teach you to read a paper. The more you read, the better you get, but it still doesn't teach you the nuances that you really need to get the most out of what's out there, if that makes sense. Yeah, completely. So like, you know, most people I know don't understand study designs. They don't understand the the hierarchy of study designs and they don't understand what statistics should be produced by what design. And there's actually a relationship amongst those things. A lot of the authors don't know them either. (laughs) I I have this conversation with my class all the time because they'll say, I'll tell them, oh, look, here's this paper. And then I'll rip it to shreds and say, and this is junk. And they'll say, well, how do you know that that's junk? And how did you know to do that? And I'm saying, well, I've spent many years learning how to do that, which you haven't. And then they'll ask me the question, well, why was it allowed out there if it's that much junk? 
And I have to admit, and I think that most people don't realize there's politics involved in a lot of this. So if your journal article is reviewed by someone who doesn't know how to do that, then it's going to get through and be published. So not every reviewer has the same level of skill to be able to pick up the problems. So you end up building on papers and on research that has critical errors in it and that have never been identified. And that leads the profession and leads the knowledge base in the wrong direction. So um, I think a starting place for most people would be to truly understand standard study designs. And you can take a course in standard study designs. They're out there. Public health have heaps of them. And then from there, if it's a good study design course, it will talk to you about the kinds of data that that design should produce. And then that will help you work out when there's been a distinct error made in the paper that you're reading. So I love the papers, for example, say this is a prospective, prospective analysis of a retrospective data set using a case control cohort design. So that statement is garbage. Because <laughs> first of all, if you are prospectively accumulating data and you go back and look at it, it's not prospective. You shouldn't even use that word. It's retrospective. Yeah. And it is a audit. You're going back looking at something someone else collected. And in and of itself, it has all these problems with it because it wasn't originally collected for the task that you're now using it which means they probably miss stuff that you need. So it's biased. And then this is a um, case control study of a cohort. Okay, so case control is a term we use for one particular study design and cohort is a term used for a completely different design. So you can't really do both unless you call it a nested case control from a cohort study. And what that means is I took a bunch of people, my cohort study, I took a bunch of people who didn't have any problem that I was aware of. I evaluated them and I followed them across time. And I looked, out, I looked at my data to see which people developed the problem. That's a cohort study. Case control means I selected individuals with the problem and I found individuals exactly the same as them that did not have the problem and I statistically compared them. So you can see how you can't have a case control and select your people and then just let them all kind of hang out and get whatever they're going to get because it right. doesn't make sense. Right. So, you know, when I see those kind of statements in papers and they're all over the place, <laughs> I used to tell my students, you don't have to read any further. If they can't get the design right in the title, <laughs> the design right in the abstract, the rest of it will be junk. Oh, goodness. How, do, how does this stuff get to print then? Like, isn't that, it's not the point of having editors and... Well, that's what I was just saying. Like it, okay. it depends. It depends who reviews your work. Yeah. If you're reviewed by someone who doesn't know those designs and doesn't know those rules, yeah. well, they'll let it through. Sometimes yeah. they let it through because it's a friend of theirs. Sometimes they let it through because of a lack of knowledge themselves. And you get to be a journal reviewer because you've basically been on a paper. So you might have been fourth author on a paper. And the journal goes, oh, yeah, she, she can review this. We'll ask her. But it doesn't mean you know anything. Yeah. So there's really no criteria or no, I mean, no So quality control knowledge. is the issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and quality control is more complete 
in higher level journals. Gotcha. So something like science and nature, those are really high level journals. They will have their own epidemiologist that's paid for. They'll have their own biostatistician that's paid for. They'll have their own editorial review committee. They're actually paid to do a job. And so the quality is built into the system. On the lower level journals where it's all done by volunteers, which is a lot of our SLP journals, it's a Russian roulette what you get. Sometimes you get really, really good reviews and good reviewers and you get editors who are awesome and sometimes you don't. And because they're all volunteering over and above their regular jobs. Gotcha. So stuff just flows in and out. Is that maybe why like some doctors and physicians will say that the dysphagia journal is not as reputable as some of their journals? Yeah, because it's hit and miss what you get. Yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. And, and, you know, it's not specific to this profession. I have to have to emphasize that this occurs in all of the professions where they're relying on volunteerism gotcha. to get things done. Well, that's good. It makes me feel better. Yeah. I yes. mean, you know, <laughs> all of health is like this. Yes. yes. <laughs> so that, push, that just sort of switches the burden then to the poor SLP or the poor PT or the poor OT or whoever it is. Right. Um, for them to upskill themselves. Yeah. And if you haven't played in this area before, and even sometimes if you have, knowing where to go to upskill can then be a problem too. Am I going to somewhere that's reputable to upskill my ability to read research? I mean, I have been arguing this for a long time, just even at the institution that I'm at, that instead of teaching research methods intensely the way we do in master's level, what we ought to be teaching is research consumption. Yes. Because you can't really ask these people to apply a methodology that they don't understand. Yeah. And when you try to do it all in a single three credit unit class, you know, you're never going to get there because the base knowledge is missing. So you're building your house on top of a faulty base. So, you know, for everybody out there listening who thinks, oh my God, I struggle with this all the time. You're not alone. And it is a complex task. And it's probably because the basic information wasn't given to you at a time when you were mentally prepared to consume it. That's the other thing that's really interesting because students are so bombarded with so much information when they get into college, especially into the master's programs that move like at a furious place with all this stuff that we have to fit in here. And they're really not mentally at a place where they even understand what they're going to be doing when they get out. I mean, you think about your first year as a CF and how much you learned. You know, you were you were full up, and you really until you started to see patients on a regular basis, you didn't even really have a concept of, wow, that's really important. I should know more about that. God, I don't. Where is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And madly looking up things. Yeah. You know, you have to be at that level and have some conceptual understanding that this stuff is, it's not just jargon to learn and forget, it's stuff you're going to apply. And I think there's a critical learning period that is not there when we introduce this information. Yeah, absolutely. That's so fascinating. Yeah, I I know. I I mean, I just remember even being an undergrad and having research papers thrown at us and it's like, we're supposed to know what this stuff all means and yeah, I mean, frequently around here we say, like, we need you to put your evidence, like, I do a lot of case-based, problem-based learning in, in the classes I teach. So here's your patient, here's the referral information from, you know, the nursing staff or the doctors. Now tell me what you're going to use to assess this patient and rationalize it. 
Why is it? Give me rationale, give me increased, decreased gaps, give me the whole thing. And the students will really struggle with a lot of this. And then they'll put these references in for evidence and I'll go through and go, well, that's junk and that doesn't support what you said it would. And <laughs> we go through it and that's because they've been taught that evidence is just putting a reference down. It just has to be somewhere in the area. It doesn't matter if this is a terrible paper that had terrible outcomes that had nothing really to do with what you were saying. <laughs> so because they're in this hurry to kind of shortcut, get through, pass the units and get the degree, and they don't see the, the longer term implications of using that piece of paper to support what they're choosing to do. You know, that paper might have said, you know, what you're planning to do is actually going to hurt the patient. The connection isn't necessarily there. And they just think EBP means sticking a reference on the end of something. Pretty much. I can see that. So, yeah. So <laughs> what is good EBP and what is bad EBP? Because it comes in all shapes. Yeah. Step one is learn your designs to start with, because that'll save you a lot of time reading stuff that's not worth it. <laughs> and then step two is really applying it. So, yeah. you know, here's a paper. What did they do? What did they actually do? Can you tell what they actually did? You know, sometimes you can't even tell what they did. So I often tell my students, particularly when I was teaching research methods, I would say to them, okay, I want you to walk me through this, this procedure that they ran step by step and tell me what you'd need. What are the, the, the uh, materials that you would need and how are you going to get them and how are you going to actually do it? What will you tell the patient? What will you tell the, the family? How will you get this patient to do that task? And how will you measure what comes out the end? Per the, per the paper that you just read. Half the time they can't replicate it. And then I'll say, well, you know, if you can't, if you can't replicate it, then what good is it to you? Because if you want to do that in your clinical position, how are you going to? Yeah, makes sense. So, I mean, that's really, aside from all the, the statistics that scare the hell out of everybody, yeah. just the procedural stuff is really, you know, you can help yourself by just walking through it and asking yourself, could I do this? If I had to replicate it, could I do it? So I remember one in particular. It was years ago when the first Sour Bolus paper came out from Jerry Logerman. And we were at UF and we decided, hey, we should try this out. We want to do this Sour Bolus-y thing. So we went to try and replicate what she did. And we couldn't find the same sour material. Oh, no. Not at all. Anywhere. Oh, no. And then we couldn't replicate it. We had to go back and go, oh, my God, how much percent of acidic lemon was it? And how much of this and how much of that? And it was, like, almost impossible to get exactly the same thing. And there were so many gaps, not to be horrible to Jerry, but there were gaps in how it was described that meant we didn't know what to tell the patient just even to take it. Do we give it to them? Do they give it to themselves? In what aliquots? how often, what kind of rest period between it, all this stuff was missing. Interesting. So if you're reading these papers and you're thinking about how you would do it, even if you've never done research before, just practically, how am I going to do this? And you can't, then there's some problems with that. Is it, would it be like acceptable to reach out to the author and ask them? Absolutely. Yeah. I get those inquiries all the time, you know, and sometimes there's a reason they don't give you all the details. And sometimes that's because guess what? There's another paper coming behind it the way they are going to explain that. Or sometimes it's because it's proprietary. And that is also the case with, especially with technology. But a lot of the times it's just that they couldn't fit it all in the paper or they 
uh, I don't know how they, they want it to look like a bikini. Yes. It's more about what it hides than what it shows. Interesting. And there's a bit of that, there's a bit of that going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess it makes me feel better. This is just like a universal healthcare problem and not just pathology. So, and you know, there are a lot of professions that really offer boot camps. I mean, ours hasn't started doing that yet, but I'm sure it's on its way at some point. They offer boot camps where they have someone come in and walk through some basic research concepts to help with paper reading. Oh, wow. So I remember many years ago at DRS, they had this guy come in. And this is when I first came over. It was really quite a long time ago. And they had this guy come in and he was a biostatistician researcher guy. He was a medical doctor. He was so great to listen to. And he basically sat there and explained to everyone simple concepts of when I read a paper and I look at a number that they put in there and they put a 95% confidence interval around it. What does it mean? And how do I evaluate it? Just really simple things like what does selection criteria mean and what makes a good selection criteria and what makes a poor one? What do I, what should I look at? So he came in and basically did a tutorial for the DRS and I thought it was awesome. Yeah. It was so easy to listen to. And there was, even though a lot of it, I already knew, but there were people who were actually starting to get it because then he showed you how it applied to different papers. So he randomly pulled up some papers from our area and showed what he was just talking about. That's awesome. And it was really, really enlightening in it. And it really made me think, yeah, there's more of this that really needs to be done. And even at a basic, I've just got out into the profession level where you know you want to read more of this stuff when you have some time, but you can't because you're frightened by it or it seems overwhelming or it just seems that there's so many, so much basic language that you're struggling just to understand. Yeah, but the... The concept of doing like a research methods boot camp sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think those sorts of things would be something that could really go well at, at, at Asher events or uh, Asher Connects. Yeah. And and what it really needs to be is, and I always say that here, is it shouldn't be monkey see, monkey do. So we shouldn't be dragging speech pathologists who have published a paper out to do this because if you want a plumber to fix your, your plumbing, you get a plumber. You don't get a speech pathologist who slept in a holiday in last night and might have read a funny Ooh, book. Yeah. That makes sense? Very much so. <laughs> right. So I, I argue that here, if we want to teach these kids good, strong statistics, let's have a, a statistician, but let's have a biostatistician, someone who at least understands the human body. Yeah. And we're not, not talking about, I don't know about you, but when I learned statistics, it was taught to me about bugs and grain levels. <laughs> yes. Which yes. I knew I wasn't interested in. Yes. yes. And by the way, I promptly failed statistics in my first year at university. Oh, good. That's so comforting. <laughs> I know it's so weird. And then I became a biostatistician later. It was so weird. Yeah. It made no sense to me. And, it, and I saw no purpose in it when I first went through. And yeah. that still exists. But I think that if you're going to get, if you're going to do a boot camp on this, have someone who's really a good orator, who can really make things simple and who's trained in that specific area. Yeah. And they're out there. Yeah. And I know even at the Charleston conference, I know that Bonnie Martin Harris, sorry about the noise in the background, they're, they're mowing the lawn outside all of a sudden. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> um, at, the, at the Charleston conference, one of the Charleston conferences, Bonnie Martin Harris had a biostatistician that she works with come and present. And that was really fascinating. 
so I, th I think there are attempts to do some of that, but I think if if we had it on a more, I don't know, systematic level where you could plug it in, plug into where you fit in your learning, that might be helpful. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And there's some really, amazing. really interesting folk out there that really do know some amazing stuff. Yeah, sure. Awesome. Well, thank you, Giselle. Oh, that's that okay. super enlightening. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you get when you've been around a long time. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, let's see. Any Any other topics you want to? chat about oh I don't know um, <laughs> basically you know I teach at the university I see patients every day uh, that's about it <laughs> all right <laughs> no, I doing that yeah I think this has been wonderful I would tell the audience to if they're interested in the stuff that we were talking about before in terms of blending motor learning neuroplasticity strength and skill training yes there is a new paper coming out and it's by a group of people. I am one of the authors, but I am certainly not the only amazing author in this group. The amazing authors are Kathy Lazarus, Georgia Melandraki, and Emily Zimmerman. And it's actually Emily Zimmerman is the primary author of that paper. It's coming out in AJSLP. So it's a direct kind of product that came out of the original health conference that was last year. Yeah, I believe. Yep. And we were asked to get together and try and blend all those concepts into a single paper. And that's going to be, it's accepted for publication. So it'll be coming out soon. So if you get to see that, it's got some neat ideas and some cool tables and stuff about how those things can be blended together. Awesome. So that would be something to look out for. Hopefully it won't be too hard to read. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> if you're having any trouble, just give me a, give me an email. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been so it's okay. helpful. It's okay. I'm glad I got a chance to chat with you. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Giselle. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.